Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. Let's turn to Mark chapter 15, and we've been looking at these verses here that describe the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. The last couple of lessons, we've looked at a lot of the the, uh, prophecies that were fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ. And where we ended up last time, in verse 37, it says, And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Now Mark, remember Mark is the briefest of all of the Gospels. It often leaves out some of the details that are included in in the other Gospels. And there's an interesting thing here when you look at the the various Gospel accounts of the, the actual death of Christ. Now we saw how uh, he was there on on the cross and he uh, said those words in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And uh, they, they, remember, brought him the vinegar to drink. Uh, verse, verse 37 then is taking place at that ninth hour of the day, so three o'clock in the afternoon. And it says that he cried with a loud voice, and gave up the ghost. All right. Now, the word that's used there for cried is not just a word that would be used for, say, somebody uh, you know crying out in pain or, or something like that. Uh, it's not the same word that's used up in verse 34, for instance, where it says he cried with a loud voice. Um, and, and says those words in Aramaic. Um, it's a, it's a word there that means to send forth. And Mark doesn't tell you what it is that he cried out. Uh, Mark just says he, he cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. Uh, but if we look at some of the other gospel accounts, we can, we can fill in a few of the details here of just these very last moments of the Lord's earthly life, Uh, go back to the book of Matthew. Turn to Matthew chapter 27. And Matthew gives a, a description that is very much like the description in Mark. Uh, again, it says verse 50, Matthew 27, verse 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Alright? So very similar to Mark. Uh, not a lot of, of detail there. Um, but it's really in Luke and John then that we can see, uh, what it was that Christ cried out. And it's, and it's a significant thing. Now, Luke and John each record something a little bit different. We have to look at, at both of them to get the full 
uh, information, but turn to Luke chapter 23. And notice here Luke's account. Luke chapter 23, verse 45 says, And the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. We saw that in Mark as well. Verse 46 says, When Jesus had cried with a loud voice, He said, Father, into Thy hands I commend My Spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now, here you have, you have the Lord, uh, commending his spirit into the hands of God the Father. Remember that Christ said about his death that no man was going to take it from him, that he was going to lay down his life of himself. And the Lord Jesus Christ dies in a, in a way that's unlike the way anybody else would die. We don't, we don't choose. Uh, the moment of our death. But here, he's able to say, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He commends his spirit into the hands of God, and, and he gives up the ghost. Alright? Now, this is something he says immediately there before he, before he gives up the ghost, but it's after he cried with a loud voice. Okay, so, so Luke has him, remember that Luke presents Jesus as a man. All of the four Gospels give a different account, a different picture of who the Lord Jesus Christ was. Matthew presents him as a king. Mark presents him as a, a servant. Those two uh, kind of kind of opposite aspects of of who he was. He was a king, and yet he was a servant. Okay, our study in in Mark uh, is about Christ as a as a servant. Uh, Luke presents him as a man, and so in Luke you have Luke. Just recording these, these words where Christ is, is commending his spirit there into the, into the hands of God the Father. But John gives us a different view of the death of Christ. Okay? And turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. John also describes them bringing the, the vinegar for him to drink. And in verse 30, notice, notice what John records about Christ's words on the cross. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. So John records for you what, what Christ says there. Now I think it's probably the, the it is finished part is the part that he cries out with the loud voice. And again, that, that, uh, when it talks about him crying out with the loud voice, it's not just him crying out in, in anguish. Uh, some, some depictions that you might see of the crucifixion of Christ would have him saying those words, it is finished in just kind of a, a very quiet, um, reverent way, maybe. Um, or, or a weak way, but Christ is, when he says those words, it is finished, that's where he's crying out with that loud voice, and, and it is a, almost, almost like a command or a, or a statement of authority. This is not Christ in weakness saying it is finished. This is Christ declaring the completion of the work that he went to that cross to perform. All right, And it's recorded there only in John, those words, it is finished, because John's presenting him as God. 
You see, Luke is presenting him more in his, in his weakness. He's there, ready to die. He commends his spirit into the hands of God the Father. John presenting him as, as God. Remember, it's John that says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's John that says all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And it's John that records those words where he says, it is finished. That's not a, that's not a statement of weakness. That's not a, a, a statement of anguish. That is a, a statement of, of accomplishment. That he has accomplished that work for which he went to the cross. And it seems to be that that makes such an impression upon the centurion. If, if you go, I think, uh, most of these gospel accounts mention the centurion as well. If you go back to our, our text in Mark, um, the, the centurion is a little bit different than the, than the thief on the cross. Remember, the, one of the thieves on the cross as he sees Christ through that day. At the beginning of the day, both of the thieves are reviling him. But before it's all over, one of those thieves recognizes his own sinfulness. He recognizes Christ's, um, innocence and he, he, you know, appeals to the mercy of the Lord. And the Lord tells him that day he would be with him in, in paradise. But this, what strikes the centurion is the manner of Christ's death and, and those things right at the death of Christ. Um, it's as he cries out with that loud voice. Now this centurion, um, you know, probably this was a part of his regular duty, these crucifixions, and, and had no doubt been there at many crucifixions. And yet when he sees the Lord Jesus Christ die, it's, it's something different than what he had seen before. Uh, again, most, most people at their death, especially this kind of death that someone's dying on, the, on this, you know, this, uh, cruel method of, of torture, the cross, and dying as a criminal, they aren't going to, they aren't going to approach that as some great accomplishment in most cases, right? But here, the Lord Jesus Christ, he, he cries out with that loud voice, um, he, he says, you know, both of those things that Luke records, he would have said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. But it's that crying out with the loud voice. This is what the centurion notices about Christ. If you look at verse 39, we'll come back to verse 38 in Mark 15. But you look at verse 39, it says, And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Here you have Christ demonstrating His authority. It's mentioned in many places that that's what people noticed about Him was that He spoke with authority. Here, even in His death, He speaks with authority. And um, it, it, you know, it seems to be clear again that it's, it's not that they're putting Him to death. It's that He's giving up His life. He's laying it down of Himself. There's a reason why He's there on the cross. And just before He dies, He, he declares that it was finished. The work for which he went there was finished. Um, understand as well that there are some, there are some false doctrines out there about the work of Christ. And there are, uh, there are people that teach what's called the, the devil ransom theory. Okay. Uh, I, where I've noticed this before, I mean, I know, I know several individuals that 
teach this. I don't know them personally, but I know of people that teach this. But I got one time an email. You know, people people get these emails that'll have some little story in it, and then it'll it'll kind of kind of try and make some spiritual point at the end. And they for, people forward these things on without really thinking about what it's what it's talking about. And it was this this sentimental story about this. Well, I forget all the details, but but basically um, there was this wicked man who had this bird in this cage, and and you know he he was terrible toward the bird, and this boy goes and purchases the bird from this wicked man uh, in order to set him free. Okay, and then at the end it was saying this is like what Christ did in purchasing us away from Satan to set us free. Alright, well, understand, I mean, we're in a bondage to sin, but, but understand, Jesus Christ did not pay anything to Satan in his death. So this, this devil ransom theory says that Christ, after his death, uh, went into hell. Now the Bible does talk about him being in hell, but it doesn't talk about him being in torments. Right? Understand that before the resurrection of Christ, it describes how even, you know, believers, believers and unbelievers alike go into the heart of the earth. But uh, when Christ talked about Lazarus and the rich man, he described how how uh, Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom. He was in a place of rest and comfort in the heart of the earth. But the the unbelieving rich man was in a place of torments. When Jesus Christ went into the heart of the earth here, he doesn't go into torments. This devil ransom theory says not only did he suffer on the cross, but he went into hell and suffered in hell to pay Satan to set us free. Now, you don't have any Scripture in the Bible that would talk about Him paying any ransom to Satan. Understand, the ransom that Christ paid was not to Satan. Um, he, I mean, if He wanted to take something away from Satan, all He had to do was do it. He didn't have to pay something to, to take somebody away from Satan. The ransom that Christ paid was to God the Father Himself to satisfy God's justice. Okay? Understand, Satan is a Satan is a, a usurper. He's a thief. He's a, the father of lies. Uh, Christ didn't need to go and pay something to Satan to ransom sinners. He did have to pay something to satisfy the justice of God. Okay, and and you know, so be careful about those things. He says here it is finished. He didn't have to suffer more after this point. He doesn't go into hell and continue to suffer for for three days and three nights. He does go into the heart of the earth, but he goes into that place of Abraham's bosom. He goes to that place of, of rest and comfort. The suffering of Christ is done there when he gives up the ghost. Um, and, and the Scripture said that he, that he suffered once in the end of the world. And this is where his suffering is done. He's not continuing to suffer during that period between his death and his resurrection. Um, now, it mentions uh, also the veil of the temple here. And uh, most of the other Gospels, when they mention the veil of the temple, they mention an earthquake that took place. Uh, and, and, you know, certainly the earthquake is what, what creates that uh, rent in the veil, or it's what God uses to do that. But Mark doesn't even record the earthquake. Um, it's as if Mark, again, presenting Christ as the servant, presents that that tearing of the veil as a direct action of Christ, the, the direct result 
of his crying out and, and giving up the ghost. It's as if Mark doesn't even want to mention the earthquake as if it, you know, as if it would somehow take the, the focus off of Christ in some way, uh, or that somebody could just explain it as a coincidence. Mark doesn't even mention the earthquake. He just presents that veil being rent, um, as a, as a result here of the death of Christ. And so you have, um, you know, several things that happened there right at the death of Christ. For one thing, the, the darkness, you have that period of time where darkness is covering the earth at the, at the death of Christ, that's where the darkness goes away. Again, you know, demonstrating he's not still suffering. He's not still paying for sin after that point. At that ninth hour, when he gives up the ghost, that's when the darkness ends. Um, and this, this earthquake takes place that the other gospels mention and the veil is rent at the exact moment of Christ's death in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, he's being killed outside the gates of the city. But inside the city, at that temple, the the big veil that separated the, the Holy of Holies from the sanctuary rips from... And it, and it rips from the top to the bottom. Okay? Now, this veil... Understand what this, what this veil was... Um, there was a similar veil in the tabernacle, first of all, and then later in the temple. And understand that the, the main, the main area of the temple, uh, was split up into two rooms. Okay, the larger room was a, a place where the service, where the priests performed the service of God. In that larger room in the temple, you had, uh, you had candlesticks, you had, uh, an altar where incense was burned, you had tables with, with showbread on them. You had these various things and the priests would go in there every day and perform the various service. But the, the smaller room in the back of the temple was where the Ark of the Covenant was originally kept. And it was where only once a year did anyone go in there. The high priest would go in there. He had to, before he even went in, he had to burn incense so that the whole room was filled up with smoke. And he would take blood in there and he would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And, and there were those cherubim there on the, on the, uh, lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which is called the mercy seat. And the symbolism there is that that Ark, which is also called the Ark of the Testimony, that contained the, the incriminating evidence against Israel. It contained the Ten Commandments, which actually the, the second set of the Ten Commandments, which uh, they had to, remember Moses had to replace them because when he first gets the Ten Commandments, he comes down and they're worshiping a golden calf. And he throws them down and he has to get the second set. Those are there. That's the testimony against them. Demonstrates their sin. Uh, also in the Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's rod that budded. And if you remember the events that led up to that, there was a, a rebellion among the Israelites against the authority of Moses and Aaron. And they said, look, God's chosen us as His people. We're all the holy people. You guys don't have any special position. We're, we're all holy. And God told them all to put, put their rods uh, outside. And He would show, the next day He would show who He had chosen. And that dead rod of Aaron's, that, that walking stick that he used, came to life and it had flowers on it and it had, had almonds on it. 
right? They took that and put it in there. Again, testimony against them. Their, their rebellion, uh, against, in that case, against the men that God had given authority to. The, the manna that God had given to them, um, that, that, you know, they were grumbling about God not giving them food. He gives them manna, which the Bible describes as being angels' food. The food the angels eat, God brings it down from heaven, and they eat that for a while, and pretty soon they're grumbling about that. And they take a bowl of that manna and put it there in the, in the Ark of the Covenant. It's a testimony against Israel. It shows their guilt before God. And those cherubim on the cover, it describes how their eyes were to be down toward the, the mercy seat. But you see, when the high priest would go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement, and he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat, that blood was inserted between the, the eyes of those cherubim and the testimony against Israel. And rather than seeing the testimony against them symbolically, those cherubim were looking on the blood that was shed. And so you have, you know, in, in that Ark of the Covenant, you have this, uh, all this symbolism about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that Holy of Holies, God said that He would dwell between the cherubim. And so when that priest was going into the Holy of Holies, he was going into the very presence of God. Alright, now here when this veil is rent, the, the veil um, there's just like there's symbolism to all of that Ark of the Covenant, there's symbolism to the veil. And it says in the book of Hebrews that the veil represents Christ's flesh. Alright? And that through Christ's flesh, there's a new way to enter into the presence of God. Not, you don't go into the presence of God today by going through a, a curtain or a veil into a, a room, you come into the presence of God through Christ's flesh. And so here at the point where that flesh has performed the work it needs to do, that flesh has borne those sins that need to be paid for, and that flesh is, is broken, the, that veil of the temple rips. Tear, it tears from the top to the bottom. Now understand, the top of this curtain is um, 30 feet high. Alright? It's uh, not something where you could, you know, you could go in as a person and tear it from the top to the bottom. The idea in it tearing from the top to the bottom is this is something God did. Alright? And now that Holy of Holies was, was laid open. Now, there's, there's a few things that the Bible doesn't completely lay out clearly, but you know, there's this question to this day of whatever happened to the Ark of the Covenant. Um, you, you know, when, when, uh, when Babylon defeated Israel and took them into captivity, they made a record of all the things that they took out of the temple. Remember, they took, uh, all those vessels of the temple. If you remember the, um, the, the King Belshazzar and how, uh, he's, judged and found wanting when he's having this big drunken party and he brings the vessels that had come from the temple and, and uses them there in his, in his party. Babylon took all those things into custody. But even at that time, there's no record of them taking the Ark of the Covenant. There's evidence that they took the candlesticks. There's evidence of, of these other things. And understand that uh, the, the kings of Israel, there were many wicked kings of Israel, and, and at certain points, it even describes how they had brought 
um, uh, like idols, they would, they would put a grove, which wasn't literally a, a grove of, of living trees, but it was a, like a shrine in the Holy of Holies itself. And, you know, it's not clear what happened to the Ark of the Covenant, presumably if they were, you know, worshiping these false gods in there. Um, you know, possibly they had moved the Ark of the Covenant out. There are, there are traditions. Now, this isn't scripture, okay? But there are traditions about that, that priests at those times for safekeeping took the Ark of the Covenant out of the Holy of Holies and hid it away somewhere because they knew that the Ark of the Covenant shouldn't be sharing the same space with some shrine to, to some foreign false god. Right? And it's probably likely that at this time that the Ark of the Covenant wasn't even in that Holy of Holies. Now again, you can't prove that from Scripture. You don't know that for certain. But, but it's likely that when that veil rent is rent, that for anybody that's there in the temple, they find out what probably nobody but a few of those priests knew, which was the Ark of the Covenant wasn't even there anyway. Um, certainly the presence of God wasn't there in the, in the Holy of Holies. God talks about, about His presence departing from there because of the, the wickedness of Israel. Uh, certainly His presence wasn't there, and it was His presence that really made the Ark of the Covenant something important anyway. And there's no doubt that uh, these priests very quickly went and got a ladder and sewed up that veil again. But, but the symbolism was, was there. I mean, it, it made the point that God was trying to make that it wasn't going to be that Holy of Holies that was the important thing anymore. It wasn't going to be the Ark of the Covenant, whether it was there or not, that was going to be the important thing anymore. It was what had just happened outside of the gates of that city. It was that, that flesh. You know, the veil is rent, but there was some flesh that was rent that was now going to be the way into the presence of God. And, and so these things are, are mentioned here almost in passing. And again, Mark gives you a briefer account than, uh, than some of the other gospels do. But understand, especially in these verses around the crucifixion of Christ, every verse is just full of, of meaning. Um, not just the things it says directly, but the prophecy it fulfills, the, the symbolism that it fulfills. And, um, the, you know, I mean, we're in a lot of these things, we're just kind of scratching the surface in our, in our study. But, um, if there's any, any part of the Bible that, that believers ought to be familiar with, you know, these verses here around the, around the death of Christ, um, certainly are very important and to understand the, the things that are going on and the symbols that are taking place there. And you see, in light of all these things, here you have even this, this Roman centurion. Somebody who, he doesn't know anything about, about the law of God. He doesn't, I mean, maybe he's picked up a little bit having been there in Israel, but, but most likely, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't know anything about these things. But he knows there was something different about that man there on the cross. And, and he even makes the statement that truly this man was the Son of God. You know, it's hard to tell how much he knew about what Christ had been teaching or any of those things, but something strikes him about that man on the cross, and he knows who he is. That's the man, that's the Son of God. And, um, uh, you know, here, here you have that encounter with Christ, um, even, even, uh, affecting the heart here of this Roman centurion. Let's close there with prayer. Lord God, we thank you 
for these things from Your Word. We, we thank You for the death of Your Son and all that it fulfilled and, and um, just the way that we can go into Your Word and see that, that it's the volume of the book that speaks of Him, that it all speaks of Him. And the symbols that You put in the Old Testament point to what Christ would accomplish. The, the things in the New Testament declare the, the uh, results of it and, and look back there at the cross. And uh, we pray that, that just like You've made the cross central in Your Word, that we would make it central in our lives. We, we thank You for what was accomplished there. We thank You that those words, it is finished, could be declared there as the Lord Jesus Christ completed that work for which He had come to the earth as He fulfilled His hour. And uh, we thank You for, for uh, all that the rest of Your Word reveals about the, the spiritual results of that. We thank You for the access that we have to You, not through a temple made with hands, not to, to uh, go through a, a veil into the Holy of Holies, but that through Christ we can enter into Your presence. And uh, we just, just thank You for that access that we have by Your grace. In Jesus' name, Amen. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.